Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Wow. What a gang. Well, and uh, we are, uh, we have a number of people with us online. So welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Uh, Today, uh, we have a very special treat uh, from behind the scenes, George Dobbins, the Vice President for Programming at the Commonwealth Club, who oversees the production of all of the Commonwealth Club's programming and has been doing so for 22 years. Thank you. My pleasure. It's, it's an amazing record of accomplishment. By my count, at least 9,000 programs at the Commonwealth Club. And he always makes clear he didn't produce all of Thank them. Thank goodness. He didn't do all the work walk. himself. There's been a wonderful staff working with him on yep. this. But I'm Gloria Duffy, the CEO of the Commonwealth Club, George's boss. And so we're, we're humorously calling this George's exit interview. Yep. This is going to be a, a fun-filled discussion of what he has seen behind the scenes and all of the momentous events George has been involved in. With uh, He came to the club in 1999. Uh, 9-11 came before too long. And then, of course, we've just been through the big trauma of the pandemic and issues about our democracy and, and other things going on in our society. So welcome to George Dobbins. Well, thank you. You know, um, it is hard for me to believe that it's been 22 years because it's it's gone. It's gone very quickly with all so much. It's been a busy time and busy days and busy hours and like you, Gloria, long hours and kind of a 24-7 job that's been exciting and exhilarating and, um, and one that I am very honored to have had. And it's, and I, I'm, you know, I, I sometimes will uh, tell people that the Commonwealth Club was founded in 1903, and I've been here since 1905. And they'll good for you. That's really great. <laughs> you know, what was it like booking Teddy Roosevelt? Well, but uh, it's it's been a really, it's it's been a it's been a great ride and um, uh, one that I will always treasure. Well, um, and this is uh, your. Uh, there's, you have only two more days at the club on Friday morning. Amazing! You will wake up. And I often find I'm an early riser and George is always there by seven o'clock on email <laughs> and uh, ready to go back and forth on, on questions of the day. So what will it be like for you to wake I up on know. Friday? You know, I'm, I'm not, na- I know this will be hard to believe, but I'm not naturally an early riser. And I, and I, you know, I normally will, will sleep late. So maybe I'll sleep a little later um, which is my inclination. When The reason I started becoming an early riser was, as you know, before I came here, I was a, a television talk show producer, and I did a live show. I worked at Channel 5 here in San Francisco at KPIX for five years on a show called People Are Talking. As a matter of fact, there is Ann Miller, the woman who hired me at Channel 5, and I'm a good friend, and I'm very delighted that she's here. And uh, one of the things we had, we did a 10 o'clock show, and I used to have to get to work at 7. And it wasn't my natural inclination. And I drove in from the peninsula. So I started drinking a lot of coffee. And I was, I, I was up to about six cups a day. And I developed a twitch. And I, was <laughs> and I finally had to go to the doctor. He said, how many cups of coffee are you drinking a day? And I told him, he said, cut that out. So I'm now down to about one or two. So no more twitch. And, uh, but that's what got me the early morning uh, uh, routine. 
Um, I'm not surprised to see your colleague from over 22 years ago here. I've found, as we announced George's retirement, the the warm wishes have come in from far and wide. Doug McConnell, the producer of Bay Area Backroads yeah. and many other programs, he used to be uh, a colleague of ours, sent his gr- regards to you and has been communicating with you. So many people, just an outpouring of fondness for you. So go, tell us a little bit about your background before coming to the club and how did you decide to go into the media? I know you're yeah. a Bay Area native. I am. I am. I, I grew up down the peninsula in Burlingame. I uh, was born here in San Francisco. Uh, so a native. Um, I loved television from the very beginning when I was a child, and I always wanted to work in it. And I, you know, I, I tell the story that when I was 13 years old, my parents took me back east to, and we, we, we went to New York and Washington and Philadelphia. And most people go to Philadelphia to see the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. And my mother and I went to see the Mike Douglas show. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was in my bones from for a long time. I loved talk shows. I believed in television. I loved its power to entertain and to move and to inform and, and do all those things. So I wanted to be in it. And so I um, decided that I would try to do that. And I went to Stanford as an undergrad, and I was an English major. And then I went and got a master's degree in television and film production at UCLA because I thought that would lead me into the business. And, of course, it still took forever to get into the business. Um, I um, actually had some interviews at Channel Five in the in the in the late seventies, um, and um, but I didn't get hired there. But Ann wasn't there, so <laughs> at least not not that I saw, and so I didn't get hired there then. But um, and so I I kind of postponed my plans to uh, to go into television for a while, and I went to work for a regional magazine in Palo Alto called Peninsula Magazine, and I'd done some yeah. newspaper stuff at Stanford and. And um, uh, Peninsula, you may remember there was a show on television called WKRP in Cincinnati, and we were kind of WKRP in Palo Alto. And it was, what I didn't know was that the day I walked in there, the entire staff had walked out like two days before. And so I'm interviewing with the publishers, and, and they're telling me, you know, that what the magazine is. And, and uh, so I called them back a couple of days later, and I said, well, I'm just following up. And, and they said, oh, yes, you're hired. And I said, well, you know, I thought I was going to be an editorial assistant or something like that. And they said, I said, well, what's my title? They said, you're managing editor. <laughs> and so I, absolutely true. And so I did that for a year. We kept it going. And it was great. You know, it was a chance to do some writing and interviewing. Um, I actually interviewed Willie Mays for that publication. And um, the problem was that the, the magazine kind of died right before... They, they, the, they ran out of money to pay the publisher, so right before it was going to come out, it died. And that, uh, that article I actually ended up selling to California Living in the San Francisco Chronicle, and it was Willie Mays out of uniform, and it was great. And it taught me a lot about preparation, too, because um, a, a woman who worked at the magazine knew Willie Mays' wife, and that's how I got the interview. And so personal connections, obviously, are important. And it's also good to plan because I also brought a photographer to Willie Mays' house, and I sat at his kitchen for an hour. Unfortunately, he came to the door not ready, not camera ready, shall we say. And so the photographer had to sit there the whole time. 
Well, I just did the interview. So it taught me a lot about preparation and informing people and all the stuff that you do in television. So eventually, all of that led to some television. Um, I've worked in a show uh, that actually, and you steered me to it also, it was a show called World of People, one of the funny titles. It was created by the guy that created Evening Magazine. And it was supposed to be to people events what the wide world of sports was to sporting events. So we did the unveiling of the $6 million watch and the, you know, uh, all kinds of you know, wild, different stories. And um, it was a great experience. And then we kind of, that kind of died. And then I went to work for, there was a show in the 50s called uh, You Asked For It, which some of you may remember. <laughs> I'm very old, so I remember it. And it was, You Asked For It was at the beginning of television. So people would write in and they would say, I want to see the tallest mountain in the world. I want to see the most dangerous stunt ever done. So they decided to redo it. And I got hired as a field researcher. It was a syndicated show, as I like to say, with an emphasis on the sin. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I met the animal chiropractor, the blind archer, the wrestling bear, the man who invented the flying car, the man who invented the bulletproof car, and numerous others. And I'd spent a day with all of them. So it was all, you know, that's why I'm the way I am today. And, and so it was, that all led to ultimately working at Channel 5 and working in talk television and that was a great experience um, uh, working. Again, you know, we did two shows a day, five days a week with the same two hosts. Very successful show here in this market. Um, taught me a lot about persistence and booking, which I think has translated to the, the, the need in this job. Two great moments of persistence at Channel 5 for me. Um, one is... Um, Carl Reiner was a great booking that I really wanted, one of the icons of television. And I would call Carl Reiner's office once a month to try to get him. And we would bring people up. We actually had a budget to fly people up and put them up at home. I mean, it's amazing when you look back in the 80s what we could do. But, you know, I kept getting no, no, no. And finally, after a year and a half, I got Carl Reiner. He came up. He was wonderful, charming. And I asked him if he'd sign me an autograph. And he wrote, to George, you win. <laughs> and that's a good moment. That's what, I, what I'm proud of. And the other moment is uh, booking Herb Cain. And I've told this to Christopher Kane, who is his son, who is married to Melissa Kane, who does some, a lot of moderation for us here and is wonderful. Um, we kept trying to book Herb Kane, the famous columnist, right, for the San Francisco Chronicle, to come on our show at Channel 5. And he kept, you know, ignoring my calls. And finally, I was having lunch one day with a, a, a woman who was a publicist. And she said, oh, there's Herb Kane over there. Do you know him? I said, no, but I've sure been trying to. She says, come with me. So we, she takes me over to his table, and she says, Herb, this is George Dobbins, and he's been trying to book you. And I said, I would love to have you come to our show. And he goes, okay, okay, I'll do it. So eventually he comes, and in the green room he looks at me, and he says, do you know why I agreed to do your show? He said, to get you off my rear end, but it didn't say <laughs> rear end. So it taught me a lot about persistence and about how far is too far and how far you need to push and all that. And television was a wonderful career for me. I think I'm talking too much, but if I am, interrupt me. Great story. Television was just a wonderful career for me. It motivated me a lot um, because I got to meet some amazing people. Um, I did spend the time at Channel 5. Then um, it was drying up a little bit for me after that. Our, one of our shows got canceled because we were opposite Oprah, and that was a tough one in the afternoon, although the morning show kept going successfully. So... Then I freelanced and did some other things and eventually ended up spending a year in Los Angeles and worked for uh, when Ron Reagan Jr. had a talk show. Um, I was a producer on that, and it was kind of a forerunner of Bill Maher. And we did, 
it was great. I was always proud of the fact that we did um, the first week it aired. Um, three of the five shows were mine, and they were all praised by the Pulitzer Prize-winning critic of the Los Angeles Times, Howard Rosenberg. So he wrote, praised those. And then I worked for Disney briefly down there, and that was an experience trying to do a, a talk show uh, with, a, with a wonderful comedian named D.L. Hughley, who's still a very popular African-American comedian. And it just didn't quite take off in the way that we, you know, that, that, uh, that we had hoped. And, uh, but D.L. is terrific and, and really very talented, and I'm glad he's got a wonderful career. Um, so that led me back up to the Bay Area. When that died, I worked for the Dr. Dean Adele show, which many of you may remember. He was a great radio host, and then he ultimately had a, a television show that was very bizarre because it was, oh, it was an NBC television show that was taped at Channel 7, which was ABC, but aired around the country on NBC stations. And it was overseen by a woman who was in charge of soap operas, a medical show overseen by a soap opera woman, who you know, wanted, uh, didn't really want Dean to do what he had done on radio, uh, which was a lot of medical stuff. So she wanted psychics and soap opera hunks and people screaming, and it was a little bit crazy. And she would also invent words that didn't exist in our meetings. So she said she liked shows that were organic. <laughs> you know, so it's very strange. And so ultimately that, you know, uh, led me to other television and ultimately, television talk, as I knew it, and the kind of thing I was doing, was kind of drying up, and a lot of it was, was moving in the direction of technology stuff in the late 90s. And so I worked for a company called CNET, and then for one called ZDTV. CNET was great. Uh, 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 Ryan Seacrest was also working for CNET at the time I was there, um, as was Ron Reagan, interestingly enough. And we did a show. We did shows about the Internet, which was relatively growing at that time, and about uh, one of the first shows I had to do was um, I, the situation, as you know, with many offices now, and it was then with tech, was you had a bullpen, and you sat out in a wide group of people, and there were really no walls. So everybody could see what everybody else was doing. And the first show I had to do was a show about porn on the Internet. So I'm sitting there in a bullpen, and I'm looking at all of these porn websites, and people are passing by <laughs> saying, what is his job? <laughs> And it was very strange, but ultimately that's what happened. And ultimately that kind of stuff all kind of dried up for me. I was booking shows with people to talk about literally, you know, circuits and wires and, you know, it was kind of drying up for me. And that's when someone we both know who was the publicity director here at the Commonwealth Club said to me, there's an opening here. And I heard a lot about the Commonwealth Club and a lot about how wonderful it was. And over the years, I'd also tried to book some of the speakers that were appearing at the Commonwealth Club for my television stuff. And so I came, I interviewed with you, and um, went through a whole process, and the rest is history. And that's, and good night, everybody. No, that's, <laughs> but that's the, that's it. So this is just skimming the surface of all the stories that George has and why we're going to miss his wit. <laughs> Um, and it so infrequently has come out. You know, you're so behind the scenes facilitating other people. So it's wonderful to hear oh, well, your story. Thanks. I want to roll back just a bit. You talked about your interview with Willie Mays. I believe that you also managed the football team while you were a student at well, Stanford. Well, right. That was good preparation for things, too. Uh, I, I, was a, I was a football manager, a varsity football manager at Stanford, which... I actually started doing that because I started doing it in high school because, frankly, it got me out of regular PE, which I was not was not one of my great skills. And so my grade went from C to A in PE in high school. 
It was great for the transcript. But it was actually a lot of fun. I, I met a lot of people that I would never have met otherwise and became friends with them. So I continued doing it at Stanford. And at Stanford, my freshman year, the team went to the Rose Bowl. They'd actually gone to the Rose Bowl the year before with uh, Jim Plunkett, and they went again with a guy named Don Bunce. And there was a, a wonderful... Uh, freshman coach, uh, Coach Moultrie, who uh, at that time there was a freshman team. Now they combine them. And he was just great. And he used to call me Dobbin, and he <laughs> didn't quite get my name right, but he knew who I was. And, and he had great philosophy. You, you, we used to have to carry these big blocking dummies to different parts of the field and get them set up for the, the team to practice. And, um, and, and one day he said, uh, Dobbin, I, I want you to take three blocking or four blocking dummies and put them over that side of the field. And I said, coach, we only have three. And he said, we'll do what it takes to get the job done. <laughs> and that was good preparation for all, all of this. And so, you know, there, it was just a little crazy. The other thing we had to do, which was probably very good, good for teaching humility, was at that time, you see the players on the sidelines now and they all drink water out of Gatorade you know, containers, and it looks very pristine and clean. But when we were there, they had these big mechanical jugs, literally, that were had these hoses coming out from them and a pump on top. And one of our jobs as the manager was to stand there and keep the water pressure up while they all stood around you. And, you know, you couldn't breathe too deeply. Um, but it was, quite a, it was quite a test of humility and, and all that. But again, I, I made a lot of friends. I worked with the defensive backs. The coach at the time was a gentleman named George Seifert, who you may know later became the coach of the 49ers. And one of my scary moments always was that I, on the sidelines before the game, he used to warm up his hand to do drills with the players, and he used to make me play catch with him. So that was always a little bit scary because you didn't want to look too, you know, clumsy. Um, but it was always great. And that was really good preparation, I think, in many, in many cases for, um, again, dealing with all the stuff that comes at us uh, that's unpredictable. Many teams and, and a few dummies. Yes, exactly. Sometimes me. But, and I got to travel, too. I went to, I went to Penn State and Hawaii and Michigan and, you know, all kinds of places. It was great. So um, tell us a little bit about working in the Disney organization, and then we'll roll forward to the Commonwealth Club. Well, I should, I should yield to, to my friend Dan, who's an, an expert on that. Um, but, well, Disney was very interesting in the sense that they had, Disney had more lawyers and accountants than creative people, actually, <laughs> which is kind of tell, very telling, at least in the, in the early 90s when I was there. And it was for a short period of time. Um, but there was a wonderful gentleman, um, and he knows I'm a fan of his, Bruno Cohn, who um, was, our, was the news director at Channel 5 and then became a development executive at Disney and brought me in to work on the DL Higley program. And Bruno was very funny also. He, he could be a combination of funny and intimidating and all of the above, but he was just a wonderful guy. And um, Bruno used to, tell, used to call these creative meetings, and he would also he would make the accountants come to the meetings too. And one day one of the accountants was saying to Bruno, Bruno, I'm an accountant. Why do I have to come to these meetings? The guy's name was Andy, and Bruno looked at him and said, Andy, and that's kind of how he talked. He said, it's time you not only learned how to count beans, but to plant them. (laughs) And so Bruno had great lines. Um, The one thing with Disney was that we we did what was called, we we used to have to do run-throughs before we did an actual show. So um, we did did a run-through of the first D.L. Hughley show, and a couple of them, actually, 
and um, and they were very particular about who they wanted. Back in the 90s, um, uh, they had uh, people like Ashley Judd and Janine Garofalo, who you may know, comedian, actress, who were, were part of the run-throughs because they didn't think they were quite ready to be part of the actual show. But we did... We did these run-throughs and all that, and 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 the executives at Disney were very challenging, um, and they they were very uh, finicky about you know their views. One executive actually said what I thought was the most arrogant thing I've ever heard in my life when he looked at me and, and looked at us and, and said, with kind of a thick New York accent, "Remember, I am the mirror that does not distort." And I thought, boy, that's, that's pretty heady. <laughs> but, you know, eventually we, we got the show on the air. We did, we did only, um, uh, we were supposed to do six, and I think we did five. And um, it, it was an experience, but it was, it, was, it was really, you know, quite an experience working in the corporate, you know. There was a picture of, of uh, Walt Disney over the men's room, you know, as you go in, and it was kind of looking down <laughs> at you like, why are you wasting my time? And then, and then we heard, we did hear these stories about Walt Disney that um, there was an apocryphal story, maybe it's true, that he used to go into executive offices late at night and and check the waste paper baskets of all the you know employees, and and if they you know if there was too much in there, it meant they were they would get demerits because they were wasting company time, and so the the story is that the employees used to carry home little bags of garbage every night. <laughs> You know, to avoid being caught. So it, it was it was quite an experience. Well, so after all this movement from place to place in the media, you settled in at the Commonwealth Club. I did. I did. And, um, you know, I had to learn because I was used to doing television with live audiences, but I wasn't used to doing live events with live audiences. That was a whole new thing about, you know, which venue and how do you do it and all that. And it was a learning process for me, and, and it was it was a, a really good one. And um, when I came in the first week, our, the speakers were the president of Mexico and Dan Quayle. That was the first first week I was here. And the first bookings that I did were... Jack Valenti, who you may remember was the press assistant to Lyndon Johnson and also the head of the Motion Picture Association of America. And at that time in 1999, people were very concerned about violence in movies and all that. And so we booked Jack uh, Valenti to come talk about that. And, you know, he was, he was great. Um, I remember being new, we used to ask, and at, the, in the, at the time, now we have conversations, but at the time... It was a speech and Q&A was more the format. And people now have evolved to more wanting more of the conversation. But we used to ask to send a copy of the speech in advance. And we got a copy of his speech, and it was like two pages long. And we thought it was supposed to be a half-an-hour speech. Of course, we didn't, what we knew was that Jack Valenti would fill the time, and he did. And it was great. The other one that I booked that, I, that I'm really proud of to this day... Um, and I see a photo here, by the way. I think I'm going to start with this photo before sure. I talk about the other one. When I started here at the Commonwealth Club, Gloria, you handed me this postcard. This is a postcard from a 1911 dinner with Teddy Roosevelt. No, I wasn't there. But, <laughs> but Gloria handed me this card, and she said, this is the image a lot of people have of the Commonwealth Club, that it's all white men, that it's a very conservative organization, and this is the image we are trying to change. 
because the Commonwealth Club was a, is a nonpartisan organization, open to all. It is an organization that has a wide range of views and a wide range of speakers. And so this is what, we're, we're, what, what, we, what we try to change. We're not, we're not as narrow as a lot of people. And I think we have. And to the credit of an entire staff of people over the years that have been so talented, um, that image has changed. And we have booked a wide range of people, a wide range of, of, of from, from different communities um, and different, different perspectives. And I, and I think that's changed. We still keep this around as a reminder. That it's we great. can always do better. It's great. And, and you know, uh, it, it's, it's a good reminder to me. And I still have my copy of it. Um, but the, the other program I was going to say that one of the first ones I booked was Marcel Marceau. And I think we have a photograph of that somewhere. I don't know. Mark, do we? The, um, well, somewhere we do. It, it'll come the, up the, eventually. He, of course, was the famous mime. Yes. That was one of the first ones I booked. See how much younger I look? That was one of the first ones that, he certainly that I booked. Too. He was. And, you know, I had booked him in television, and I knew he was a great talker. And so we called it Marcel Marceau Speaks, which was a great title. And um, he came and, you know, we, we knew that he was fascinating. Um, he, unfortunately, when he showed up, he didn't know a lot about the Commonwealth Club. And he saw us, you know, selling tickets at the front desk. He goes, why are you selling tickets to my event? You know, even though we thought that this had all been explained, but not necessarily. So we explained that we're a nonpartisan organization, nonprofit. This is how we pay the bills. We rent our space, all that. And so he said, okay, okay. So we take him backstage, and then he says to me, and this is why my philosophy of, of booking, as you know, is that there's no such thing as an easy booking. And as Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. And this is the proof of that. So he's backstage we're about to go out, and he looks at me, and he goes, all right, I will not talk about my personal life, and I will not do any demonstrations. This is the famous mime who won't talk and won't show, won't show anything, right? And I said, well, let, let's give it a little bit of, of time and see what happens you know, out there. I think you'll be comfortable when you go out. It was a sold-out house. It was in our original 595 Market Street building. So he, he, it, the great part was, he did go out, and he did talk about himself, and he did do demonstrations. And what we learned was that during the Fran during the World War II, he was in the French Resistance, and he was a forger. And there's also a movie that's been done recently, I think, about him doing, you know, in that in that he role. Forged passports for Jewish. Yes, I believe. And he was he is Jewish or was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so it was all done, and everybody found it magnificent. And he was just charming and wonderful. And then at the end, he said, next time I want two hours. <laughs> and unfortunately, he passed away a few years later. We never got that. But that's an example of you never know what's going to happen, and you just have to do your best to, to go with the flow and try to, you know, try to talk, people, talk to people in a way that's respectful and, and hopefully um, shows them what you're about. Before you have somebody up on the stage, there's, of course, a whole process that goes on uh, to entice them to appear. And you talked about how you did that during your media uh, career. But on a, in a case like Marcel Marceau or others, how did you get, reach out to him? How did you convince well, him? Well, we my wife and I were reading the newspaper one morning, and we saw that he was in town. And we thought, and, that, and that's, in those days, you know, there wasn't a lot of, of the internet and all that. So we thought, yeah, let's, uh, there he is. He's coming to town. Let me call. And so I did call. And you try to say, obviously, the phrase that we always used to use in television is, what horse do they have to ride? 
And, and so you try, to, you try to find that always. You try to find what is the motivation for them coming here. Obviously, the great motivation that we have here at the Commonwealth Club, which is great, is that it's a prestigious organization. It's, it's an organization that treats people respectfully. It is an organization that has great, uh, you know, a great radio program that's been around since 1924, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, longest running, continuous one. Um, it has just a lot of qualities in addition to press coverage and coverage p- promotion for whatever they're in town to do. So I, I think we, you know, we can sell that. It is true, though, that you know, these days the, the landscape has evolved, as, as we often discuss, and there are so many more organizations you know, in the business of doing public events. And um, I think we have still a lot to sell. But, you know, the Commonwealth Club, a lot of people don't know, does not pay speakers. We, you know, we, we um, uh, never have, and we, are, we really operate on the basis of trying to sell what we do to the speaker in terms of what they will get out of an appearance here. And there's a lot of bang for, for, for a little bit of buck. So that's what we do. Um, why do you think what the Commonwealth Club does is important to devote 22 years of your life to this, yeah. to move from a career in the media? Yeah. What went on in your mind to make the decision to come to the club and stay for this yeah. period? The range of people that come here, the range of ideas. Thank you so much. The range of ideas that are discussed, um, you know, on the stage. I mean, just the, the range of people that you can see here. This this is a, uh, a one of my favorite pictures of me with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because it's the only time in history when I'll be perceived to be taller than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, <laughs> as you'll notice, and that's because he's sitting down and I'm standing up. So, but the range of people that you see, you know, you don't look taller than I. <laughs> he's not as tall as Kareem, but. It was great, and this he came to us before he was governor when he was um, wanting to advocate for after-school programs for youth, and it was a great, great appearance as a result. Um, you can just see, this is Annie Leibovitz, the great photographer, and one of the great things about her is that she would, before it was fashionable, she was grabbing people's cameras when they wanted to take a picture of her and doing selfies so they could say that they had a photograph by Annie Leibovitz. Did she do that? Was she doing No, that, that was, somebody else took that one. So this one isn't, this was one, one toward the end. Um, but she was just great. This is another one of the, we talk about the range of events. Um, Governor Jerry Brown and Gus Brown, his wife, um, this was the night we also, we did two major events at the Marines Memorial Theater where we had the Browns in one on the main stage, big stage, and then in another big room, we also had Pete Buttigieg. So all at the same night, and they all wanted to meet each other, and it was, it was a little bit of a circus, but it was really great. And, uh, and this was right after Governor Brown had, had left office. And he and and his wife had a wonderful appearance, and I think the and you interviewed them, and I think the, the the great statement she made, which I think he found amusing, also is that there are times that he still thinks he's governor, <laughs> but she said that on the stage. But he's a, he's really a wonderful guy. He's engaged in so many things, as Gloria knows, and over the years, he's he's very much engaged in dialogue with Russia. He's engaged in, on the international stage. He's, he's engaged, obviously, in climate issues, uh, just so many things. This is another wonderful, rare moment that I treasure. Um, we did a program with Maria Shriver, who was interviewed by Jennifer Granholm, who's currently the Secretary of Energy, 
who was then um, the former governor of Michigan and uh, and at the University at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, of course, George Schultz and Charlotte Schultz, the late George Schultz, just a wonderful icon and been so supportive to the club. And Maria Schreiber, of course. And just such a treasure to have that assortment of people. And that's what we're about in so many cases, is that to have that that sort of pairing and conglomeration of people that you don't get everywhere. And I think that's a rare moment. And this is a real moment that I treasure just having had it a few years ago. Um, let's see what else we have. Well, you know, to get the Speaker of the House uh, with the frequency that we've had her has been quite something over the years. And, um, you know, she's been a, a you know, a, an amazing person to keep inviting back. And, and it's been it's been great to, to be able to do that, to participate in that and in those bookings. Um, well, this is another great moment for me. Um, yes, I can do it, I think. Um, <laughs> there it is. Live long and prosper. George Takei is wonderful. And, you know, over the years, um, uh, we've done a few things, a couple of things with him. This was one a program a couple of years ago we did uh, by himself where he talked about his you know, his internment in the Japanese-American camps, and, and uh, he talked, and he's written his musical related to that, and just so many things political. He's really an amazing guy um, for, uh, you know, all that he's experienced. And the other program he did with us, and there, this is the other thing, we talk about the moving programs that we've done. Um, there was a, a program about seven years ago on the anniversary of the Prop 8 Supreme Court decision on marriage equality, and we did a program with the two lawyers who um, uh, made that decision uh, a success, um, David Boys and Ted Olson, one Republican, one Democrat, interestingly enough, you know, because this was a human issue. And the, we invited George Takei to do the introduction, and we invited, at the time, Lieutenant Governor Newsom to moderate. And that's what we did. And to me, that's one of the most moving programs I've ever experienced. And the other, it was moving having George Takei. Uh, it was great getting to write for him, by the way. And I did write an introduction for him. But it was also moving having Gavin Newsom moderate when he asked the two lawyers, Why, what got you motivated to do this? And they looked at him and they said, you did. You know, that was a moving moment for me to hear that. It was a human moment. And those are the great moments. But George Takei is a, is a great man. Well, this is probably my uh, greatest moment of tenacity, I guess you can say, um, booking Jimmy Carter. He's, the, he's one of the few presidents that had never spoken at the Commonwealth Club. And it took us 13 years to get him. And, and we had a lot of help. And, you know, as Gloria knows, one of my metaphors, in addition to, I, I have two metaphors. One is plate spinning, you know, like the old plate spinners from the Ed Sullivan show that Metaphorically, that's what we do. We spin the new ones and we try to keep the old ones from crashing and keep all, the, all of them in the air. And the other thing we do is we dig tunnels and we dig metaphorical tunnels. And sometimes there's a lot of dirt and sometimes there isn't. But when there's a lot of dirt, you have to go at it from many different angles. And we did that with Jimmy Carter. We had a number of people, several people that knew him, two of our board members that were involved in the Carter Center. Um, we also had other ways. I mean, over the years, I tried every which way. We had had Rosalind Carter speak a couple of times at the club, and we still hadn't been able to get President Carter. And he even, in our old building, which was on Market Street, there was an independent bookstore, Stacy's, which sadly is no longer there, but they were wonderful. He was literally signing books one day next door to us. So I stood in line 
And, and I bought a book, and I said, oh, we're at the Commonwealth Club. We'd love to. And he goes, great organization. Of course, and the Secret Service kind of said, okay. You <laughs> and, but we tried all these different you know, methodologies, and finally, we were able to get them. They called up one day, and they said, okay, it's the, su- the Sunday of the Academy Awards. Can you do them? And I said, you bet. So it was the Sunday. Of the, it was actually the day that Argo, the film, was nominated, which, of course, is about, has Jimmy Carter featured in it. But we did a noon program with him. He literally flew in from San Diego, did a noon program with us, and flew out back to Georgia right after that. And the moment, and he was great. He gave a great talk about foreign policy, and he and just so thoughtful, and 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 just, and and also he was just so lovely, just really a nice human being. And what I remember is, and this is my personal favorite moment of all, is when he was done. I was the last person he talked to going out the door, and he looked at me and he said, "I loved it." <laughs> and I never forgot that and never will. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a good story. Tell, tell just a little more about how you dug the tunnel because yeah. this is, the Commonwealth Club is a very wide network and we use all of our opportunities to convince people yeah. to, to join us. Well, you have to. In other words, I think it's really important in, in bookings to try to, to, try to uh, use people that, or get to people that know the people you want. The personal connections are often really important, I think. Um, and, and so I tried to utilize those, and those were, that's what ultimately happened. And what we realized was that it wasn't President, that President Carter didn't... We thought for a while, oh, does he think we're, you know, elitist or, or something that, you know... And it wasn't that. It was that he's so busy. It was that he was, you know, building houses for people with, you know, Habitat for Humanity, and he was going to Africa to erase Guinea worm, and he was doing all these actual things that he took his time, and he was, so he didn't have time to give speeches or make appearances. But that's why we just kept pressing, and we made, you know, we made all the inroads we could through, you know, uh, you know the, the official channels and then the personal channels. And ultimately, it finally, after 13 years, it finally happened. But it was really, it was really great, and it was really everything we'd hoped for, I think. And we had a thousand people at Herb's Theater, so that's pretty good on a Sunday. So it was great. And sometimes you never know how you're going to, you know, get speakers, as we've talked about. Um, uh, uh, you get uh, people approach you with, you know, different things, and you have to follow those leads. Um, in uh, Maybe 20 years ago, I, I was sitting in my office one day, and I got a call from a, a person who said, um, how would you like to book Newt Gingrich? And again, that's what we do. We book all, all views. And it was right after Newt Gingrich had been Speaker of the House, and, um, and he was out on the speaking circuit and was charging some money, and um, he was a private citizen. And I said, of course, absolutely. And, and, and this person uh, was actually ha- was in our building and had an office um, and a business-related education. And he, he said, well, he's a friend of mine. He's coming here in about a month. Would you like to meet him? And I said, sure. And, of course, you're thinking in your head, is this really going to happen? But you say, absolutely. And so, sure enough, he called me. He said, next week's Newt, Newt's going to be here. Would you like to come up? And I said, absolutely. So, in a very surreal way, I did. I went up to this gentleman's office, and I sat around a table with Newt Gingrich, this gentleman, uh, Newt Gingrich's assistant, and me. And we talked about appearing at the Commonwealth Club, and I said, you know, we don't pay. And he said, I understand. And we ended up booking two programs with him, one in San Francisco and one in Silicon Valley. And again, you never know from, you know, from whence it comes. 
Speaking of Silicon Valley, I'll never forget the program with George W. Bush yeah. uh, just at the time the Iraq war was being launched. That must have been an amazing one to yeah. manage. Well, and that also was, you know, came about through some personal connections that, that you had with Secretary Rice, who you know very well, who was obviously in the administration and I think helped put some good words for us. And um, uh, it's always, I think it's the most intense and among the most exciting things to book a sitting president. That's the only sitting president I've ever actually booked. And it came about one day when I got a call on a Friday and from a gentleman who was a fundraiser um, involved with the president and said, well, would you like to do a program with him? And of course I said, of course, absolutely. He said, well, it may be very short notice. I said, that's okay. And the following Sunday night at home, I get a call from him and he says, how about a week from Tuesday? I said, absolutely. <laughs> and so with, with the help from a lot of staff people and, 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 uh, you know, and others, we, we made it happen and we did a program. It was at 1030 in the morning it was less than six months after 9-11. It was with 1,500 people at the uh, San Jose Convention Center. And the moment I also remember is that, you know, it's very surreal. Sometimes I, I've told Gloria this and I've told others that uh, there's a Woody Allen movie called Zelig. And you may remember the premise of it is that Zelig is, is, is a character who finds himself surrounded by famous people throughout different periods in history. And sometimes I feel like Zelig. You know, and I did it this time too, because you're witnessing all of this. And um, you know, I'm backstage, and and Gloria was introducing uh, the program, and also moderated a couple of questions, a few questions afterwards after he was done giving a speech. So we have a few of our board members come in to greet him, and they leave, and Gloria goes out to introduce uh, uh, the president, and I'm backstage just with him alone, and. I never forgot the fact that I'm standing there and he has no idea who I am except that I'm, you know, the Secret Service has an idea who I am. And he came over to me and offered his hand and shook my hand and I never forgot it. And I always thought that that, that tells you a lot about a human being because he didn't have to do that. And uh, so that, that was a lot. And um, it, it, was, it was very intense. We used to go to these night meetings as they called them every night, where they talk about the progression of Air Force One wheels down to Air Force One wheels up and all the things that were going to happen. And they would point at me and say, and you, you're responsible for making sure nobody gets in without a ticket. I said, sure, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I had some very good help. And, and uh, uh, you know, there, there, there's Kara, uh, who still works in our Silicon Valley uh, office, helped a lot with the ticketing and all of that. It was a big help. So... It, 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 but you, you know, you have to. You have, it's a very intense situation, but it's a very exciting one, and I've never forgotten it. Probably the most intense program ever. Speaking of uh, high-level officials, someone in our audience wants to know: Can you tell the Al Gore elevator story from the <laughs> elevator? It's a great story, and you were part of it. Okay. Um, in 2002, we did a program with Al Gore. And it was at the Fairmont. It was obviously less than a couple years after he, after the you know controversial election, right? And it was at the Fairmont, and we I think we had a room of over 500 people for a noon program. It was the, um, and you and I were went up to meet him and Tipper at the time to ride down in the elevator with them. And as we're riding down in the elevator, he says to us, "This is a historic day," and we thought, "Oh, you know, okay." Yeah. Well, we went and looked it up later, 
and we discovered that it was indeed 70 years to the day of FDR's New Deal speech, perhaps the most famous speech ever given at the Commonwealth Club. And he knew it. And that tells you a lot about Al Gore. So, pretty, a pretty good moment. Other stories? Any other behind-the-scenes stories you'd like to share? Uh, well, there there are just some, uh, you know, some there there have been some uh, some great moments just with with speakers. Yeah, Jesse Jackson is another one um, who's an icon and obviously just been amazing that we we had him. We we gave him. We did a series called the Medallion Awards, uh, where we, in honor of the club centennial, we gave a number of of people awards for having positively shaped our era. I think that was the phrase. And he was one, and as a matter of fact, we had a reception as well for all of those people that were part of the Medallion Awards. And uh, I do remember that when I, this was a little later, this was just a few years ago, and Reverend Jackson is still amazing and still so active in so many things, and again, just a great icon of our time. But what I also remember is that when we gave him the Medallion Award, we were taking pictures out on the balcony, and he said, would you like to take one with me? And I said, absolutely. And he also produced the picture because he had me take off my name badge, which I never would have thought of doing. <laughs> said it looks better that way. So I never forgot that. <laughs> Pretty considerate. Yeah. Um, the other medallion moment that comes to mind, and perhaps one of the the, the, the funniest moments that I remember, Ted Turner. Ted Turner. <laughs> and Ted, Gloria remembers it well. And Ted Turner was a character and is always one of the great American characters, as you know. And we were doing a program with him and we were going to give him an award, again, in the same way we, we did with Reverend Jackson. And he was getting a little antsy of the program, and he kind of wanted to cut it short. It was an hour program, and he kind of, with 10 minutes to go. So he, he literally burst out. He said, he said, you know, I flew myself here. I spent $50,000 on my plane to get myself here. He goes, uh, he goes, Give him my award and let me go home. <laughs> and, and then he says, and then he said, I'm not getting paid for this. And the moderator was a wonderful woman who was the executive editor of the Chronicle, Narda Zacchino, and she looked at him and said, Well, neither am I. <laughs> and he said, All right then. And he stuck around. And then he came back a couple years later for another interview with, related to a book he'd written. And Again, you never know. He's one of the. That's what makes a great guest. Um, uh, you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. And uh, he was being interviewed by Phil Bronstein, the journalist. And, and at one point, he um, just turned to Phil on the stage, and he goes, "Want to hear me sing?" And he sang "My Old Kentucky Home" beautifully, like right on key, stunning. Just a great moment. <laughs> and you you just never know. Those are the, those are the moments that you just. You never expect, you never know, but they're, they're great moments. I think you have a Walter Cronkite story, too. Well, yeah, I think maybe we have a photo of, of that. Let's see if we, well, am I, well, maybe not. Okay. Um, Walter Cronkite, of course, was an icon for so many of us go. for so many years. There it is. Thank you, Mark. Um, and he was just a you know uh, the man the man who told us that president kennedy had been killed the man who covered the moonshot land the moon landing i mean just so much so much history that so many people have with walter cronkite including me and as somebody who'd been in broadcasting it was really a great thrill to get to book him and we did he also got one of our medallion awards and i had to go up to his hotel suite we were going to bring him down for the program 
Um, and I knocked on the door, and, um, and his wife came to the door and answered the door, and she was lovely and very gracious. And I look across the room, and there's Walter Cronkite sitting in a chair reading the newspaper, telling me I'm just catching up on the day's events. And I thought, well, God, is that a sight mm-hmm. to see Walter Cronkite catching up on the day's events? Mm-hmm. And, and I said, well, let me give you a few more minutes and of course I went away and then I came back in 10 minutes and they opened the door again. He said, well, I told you, you didn't, have, I didn't think you had to leave. <laughs> so he was just really gracious and funny and lovely. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, when, when sometimes you ask speakers if there are any requests that they have. And um, for Walter Cronkite, there was just a very simple phrase that came back, Johnny Walker Black. <laughs> <laughs> and he was charming and wonderful to everybody. And it was just, it was a great moment. Um, there are a few other great moments, too. Um, I don't know if we have the picture of Carol Channing, but, oh, well, this is a great moment. Uh-huh. Um, with the late Ellen Tauscher, who was on our board and just a wonderful, amazing human being. On International Women's Day, we, inter- we did a program with Madeleine Albright and her amazing daughter, Katie, who um, heads an organization to fight child abuse called Safe and Sound. And the two of them together with Ellen... Was a, it was just a wonderful program about all the great work they do, but just it was so human and so touching, and it just was a, a memorable, wonderful moment that I'll never forget. So that's a great moment. Here's another great moment early on. The great Carol Channing, who was amazing. And we did a program with Carol Channing at the Fairmont Hotel, and in the last 10 minutes of the program, we were, doing, we were in the Venetian room, the laundry room at the Fairmont Hotel is apparently right beneath the Venetian room because in the la- about 10 minutes to go in the end of the program, the late and great Ray Taliaferro, who was a member of our board and had a great voice that I could never begin to mimic, starts telling us, you'll all have to leave. There's a fire below in the laundry room and we'll have to clear the building. And that was true. Wow. So we had to exit the building, evacuate, and God love Carol Channing, who suffered from arthritis. She's out on the front of the Fairmont balcony in a cold winter's night signing books for people. And I never forgot it. Wow. And that's a trooper. So wow. there's, a, there's another great moment. Wow. Here's another great moment. Um, many of us who grew up in the, in the 60s or were around then remember Richard Chamberlain who was, of course, Dr. Kildare and later in the Thornbirds and many other things. And someone came to me um, and said, might you be interested in having Richard Chamberlain speak? And I said, absolutely. It had been, been many years since people had seen him. But what was wonderful was when he walked into the room, people gasped. It was, just, they were, it was like seeing an iconic movie star that they hadn't seen or a television star that they hadn't seen in a long time. And I remember when I talked to him on the phone, he was a lovely man. He said, do you think I really can fill an hour? And I said, you bet. And it was a charming, wonderful evening in conversation with the lovely Mary Bitterman, who is the former head of KQED and now with the Osher Foundation, who's on our board. And it was a wonderful program. So another, another great moment. And he was great. Well, there's another great moment. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And just someone that we'd wanted for a long time and um, someone that, you know, I think when he showed up, he wasn't aware of the size of the crowd we had. It was at the Castro Theater. I think he might have thought we were going to have a little bit smaller crowd. We had 1,500 people, and I think he thought somehow in his head it was going to be a smaller crowd. 
but he'd written a book about the Godfather called The Godfather Notebook, and it was sort of his production notes on the making of The Godfather, and it was fabulous, and it's a great book. And he was great. And finally he came out, and he was... You can still view this program on the Commonwealth Club's website or on YouTube. He impersonated Marlon Brando. He impersonated uh, Al Pacino. He told amazing stories about the whole production of The Godfather. And when it was all done, he did three opera bows to the audience. Center, right, and left. And I never forgot it. So, great moment. There's the great Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West, one of the great African-American scholars and activists. And just wonderful energy with a wonderful woman named Cheryl Davis, who's the head of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. And just a wonderful program. Um, Again, very inspiring, uplifting, and and again, illustrating the range of programs that we we do. Um, Let me see here. That's one of the early on programs. We did a number of programs with with, uh, Bruce Bochy, who was the coach of the San Francisco Giants manager. And Roy Eisenhart, who was on our book jury, head of our book jury, and and, uh, so active in the club, supporting many of our programs, um, interviewed him. But what was interesting about Bruce Bochy is I always used to see him in the dugout, and I didn't think he was very tall. And then he showed up, and he is a giant. So, and a lovely man, and a wonderful man who's done many programs with us, and, and just a great memory. I know time's ticking. The great John Glenn, also an icon, you know, to do uh, iconic figures like that is, is great. And we've done a number of astronauts over the years, but he's certainly one of the most iconic. The, one of the other moving moments we did was with Sally Ride, who was a wonderful, iconic figure and, and such a, a, a role model for so many young women, young girls in school. And we filled the room with young students, young women, young girl students um, with her. And it was a very wonderful evening that we had with her as well. So... So, George, um, we are getting towards the end of our I'm probably talking Sadly, too much. Sadly, you are I not apologize. talking too much. I'm just absolutely thrilled by, by the stories, most of which I've never heard. I sort of saw how it all came out. I didn't see what went into making it come out that way. We started at the beginning with that picture of the Teddy Roosevelt dinner in 1911, which, by the way, was momentous. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt talked, he coined the term conservation, at that talk that he gave. It was actually, he was talking about the, the timber barons and how they would be better off with, for their businesses if they um, metered out how they uh, took the timber from forests and let the forest continue to grow rather than cutting it all and clear-cutting it. So it was a very foresightful talk in 1911. But um, we talked at, when you first arrived about Uh, how that was both the image and we were trying to change the reality of the club. How has the conversation changed? How have the people on the club stage changed in the 22 years that you've been here? Well, I think the range of people has has grown enormously, as as have the issues that we're confronted with. Um, I think we're we have found ourselves in, in, in obviously in a pandemic, you know, that we never thought we'd find ourselves in, I think. And it's changed, obviously, the way people are coming to the club now. Um, we have speakers and viewers from all over the world that we thought we'd never have. Um, we, you know, just when I would be sitting at home, you know, managing some of these programs, I had amazing people just 
you know, in my, my living room there. I mean, just amazing people, you know, whether it's Prince Edward or, um, you know, uh, Ken Follett, the author, or other people coming from all over the world. You just never know. And I think with all, with the pandemic, with the, 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 the issues of, of uh, gender and racial equality that we're being confronted with these days and seeing so much of, I think we are booking, you know, a wider range, and this, you know, goes to the staff doing so as well, uh, a wider range of people than we've ever seen. And I think trying to send the message that we are, you know, an organization that wants to hear wide viewpoints. We want to hear people that have substance, substantial things to say, substance. We ideally want to hear people that are based in reality, you know, that understand, you know, what facts are. It's one thing to argue over policy, and it's another thing to argue over facts. But I think we really are, are, are trying to cover a range of important issues that people are grappling with in their daily lives and try to present perspectives to people to make them think and act in ways they feel they should. But um, that's what I hope we're doing. That's what I hope the role of the club continues to be. I think we've moved a long way since the, yeah. the echoes of that 1911 photo. And uh, I really am grateful to you and the staff members who work with you for making sure that it's a platform that represents equity, justice, diversity, and the values that we want and hope to see in our society. So thank you for what you've done to, to make that happen and to your colleagues who work with you on that. Thanks. Well, thank, thanks to, and thanks to the audience for, you know, for coming to our programs and supporting us and understanding that, um, that you don't have to agree with everybody that's on the stage, but uh, that this is an organization that prevents a civil platform for discussion and thoughtfulness about these issues, and that hopefully you will take the, that platform and think about your own views and, and, and take what you can from that. So, George, we're going to miss you every day in every way. Um, thanks to Rosie, your lovely wife, for uh, putting up with all of us. I'm lucky she puts up club. with me. And for sharing, George, so many hours of every day with the club. Sort of in the style of Walter Cronkite or one of your other media uh, colleagues, how do you sum it all up? Well, that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> Any other final um, summation, words of summation? Well, it's I just been a, a, a real privilege to be able to do this and to be able, you know, booking is my life. I mean, I guess that's the answer. And it's just been a privilege to be able to keep doing that and to learn. I'm, you know, I'm somebody who is very, make no bones about the fact that I'm um, somebody who uh, enjoys meeting a variety of people and am fascinated by people in the public eye and to see what they're really like and to learn what, they're really, what they really have to say. And that's been the privilege I've had. Well, thank you for sharing that passion with all of us for so many years, and thank you for all you've done. Thanks, Gloria. So grateful. Well, as the old phrase goes, I'll be around the corner. All right. We'll count on that. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks to our audience here in San Francisco. Thanks to our audience online. And now this program of the Commonwealth Club has come to an end. Uh, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. I hope I didn't say too much. No, it could go on for, forever. <laughs>
You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.